So um, as we, as I get ready, as you guys get ready to hear me, I want you to think of a couple of things as uh, I get ready to deliver the word to you. A few, several things. One, coffee is the elixir of the gods. Amen. Jesus and Pyre, the answer. Rick. Houston has one job. Beat L.A. Beat L.A. Uh, That was an exciting Christmas gift. I mean, actually kind of a Christmas gift, a birthday gift that the Astros won last night. So that was great. Um, I am not sorry for you Yankee fans, so. Oh, yeah. So we are um, getting ready for No Fear November. And I'm in day two of uh, growing my beard. I thought that it made more sense for me to start on my birthday. So my birthday was day one. I'm in day two. And um, uh, I promise you that there is the good possibility that my beard will be as white, if not whiter, than uh, Wes Boots' Santa beard. So um, we'll see how it goes. But... uh, in No Fear November, uh, Ross has thrown down the challenge, so kind of throwing it out there as a reminder to all of you who uh, we are going to grow our beards in, um, in November. So those of you who have a beard, you can shave and then start over, or you can continue just to go, go, go. Or, and those of you who don't, um, then you can be like me and, and try. It's, I promise that it's not going to be perfect. This is the first time I've ever grown my facial hair out in my entire life. And so we're going to see how it goes. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we'll take a vote at the end and see how it goes. Um, the other thing that I want you to think about is uh, uh, St. John Moore, the freak, um, said uh, during a certified lay minister class that I took a couple of years ago, there are four types of worshipers. There are the lovers, and the lovers are like, could they just sing, you know, like 15 more songs, and my worship uh, will be filled and complete. Oh, the, you know, the beautiful songs, the beautiful voices, just love it. Just If, if Sarah could just keep on singing, uh, you know, I, I hear the voice of God. Those are the lovers. And then you have uh, the sages, and the sages are, preach it, brother, preach it, preach it, sister, preach it. If you could just preach another hour, that would be fantastic. Just keep on going. I, I hear you. I, I'm Mike Black's right there. Like he's like, yes, keep yeah, keep it going, keep it going. But then there are the prophets. And the prophets in the room are like, could you just shut up and get to the point and tell me what to do so I can go out and do it? They want to go out and 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 do it. And then you have the mystics. And the mystics are, could somebody please shut the piano player up during prayer time so it's completely quiet so that I can pray? So think about those four. Pick a style. Are you a lover? Are you a sage? Are you a prophet? Are you a mystic? And um, think about that as we kind of go further into this word because that is going to kind of also identify you as what type of servant minister you are. Servant minister, you ask. What's that? Well, let's go back a couple of years ago. And you should be scared when I say this. 
Um, you remember when Travis was out of town, so the cat's away, the mice will play it? I promoted all of you from volunteers to servant ministers. Remember that? Remember? Remember? Well, you do now. So you guys are servant ministers. Live into your promotion. You should be happy. You should be glad to have been promoted. You should be scared to what I promote them to the next time you're out of town. <laughs> so, uh, so think about that, that you're servant ministers, servant leaders. You are more than volunteers because God has made you more than just than that. He has made you to be servant ministers. And so when I was kind of thinking about this, I uh, ran across... Um, a uh, an article that Adam Hamilton uh, Adam Hamilton's a really big deal preacher within the United Methodist Church, and uh, he wrote a book. Yes, I know that's going to shock some of you. Uh, well, that's kind of a bad joke because Adam Hamilton writes a book like every other day. Yeah, and so uh, Adam wrote a book recently on Moses, and it got me to thinking about uh, being a servant minister and Moses. So, what do the two have? In common, well, we'll get into that to that a little bit deeper. And so, it got me to thinking about Moses and Moses and who he was and and what he represents to us and what what it is that he is to us. And so, I started kind of thinking about this. Moses. So Moses, we know the story of Moses. We're taught as as kids in Sunday school about Moses. His, you know, uh, Pharaoh wants to wipe out a generation of children because he's worried about uh, the Hebrews outnumbering the Egyptians, and so he goes off to to slaughter the innocents and. Um, Moses' mother builds a little bassinet out of reeds, and she coats it with uh, tar so that it can float into the river. And uh, she puts it in the Nile River uh, amongst some reeds so that baby Moses doesn't go drifting off out into the Mediterranean Sea. And um, I was corrected at the last service, so I'm just going to put it this way. Uh, A princess of Pharaoh comes walking along and hears Moses probably crying because he's possibly a little wet. Double entendre there. Uh, and uh, probably a lot hungry. And, um, and so he, she goes out and she, she rescues Moses from the Nile. And uh, one of her handmaidens said, we need to find somebody to nurse this baby. And so they go find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby. And the, the nursemaid nurses Moses to a certain age and then brings him back to Pharaoh's palace where the princess raises Moses as her own son. We know this story. It's not, there's not much about it. You can find it in Exodus 1, 2, and 3 is where I'm, uh, where I'm paraphrasing from. And so Moses grows up. He grows up uh, in, in the house of Pharaoh. And there's some things that you need to think about as this is happening. Moses grows up privileged. He doesn't have to worry about where his next meal is coming from. He doesn't have to worry about the clo- where the next clothes on his back are coming from. He doesn't have to worry about uh, possibly sleeping on the floor. He's probably got a nice bed that he sleeps on. He's probably, got, uh, he's probably got his own servants who take care of him. And the biggest thing of all that Moses does not have to worry about is he doesn't have to work. He's privileged. He is treated as somebody who is within the family of Pharaoh. But here is an interesting fact about this story. 
Moses grows up in the house of Pharaoh and he knows who he is. Somebody probably told him where it is that he came from, probably told him his story. You were found in a river (coughs) and you were brought in and we took care of you and we love you like our own. So he knows that he is Hebrew. He knows that he is Jewish. And yet he's not treated as one. He's treated as an equal to the family of Pharaoh. He's treated as an equal as an Egyptian. But one day he goes out as a young man. I, I don't. Nobody knows how old he is. He's walking around, kind of checking things out, and he decides he makes a conscious decision to go out and see his people, see how they are, see how they're being treated. And he sees an Egyptian man being very harsh to a Hebrew slave. And he's beating him. He's beating him hard. And uh, and Moses steps in to this altercation where the outcome is, is that he has killed this Egyptian. He looks around. Nobody's seen him. And he takes this Egyptian and he hides him and he buries him. And he goes off. And the next day, he is interested. He's interested in going out and seeing his people again. And he goes out and he sees two Hebrew men uh, coming close to fisticuffs. Their disagreement is taking them close to a fight. And he steps in and says, why are you treating your fellow man this way? And they both turn on him and say, what? Are you going to do to us like you did to the Egyptian yesterday? Are you going to kill us, hide us, bury us? And Moses gets scared. And so he takes off and uh, crosses the Red Sea and goes out into the wild. His life of privilege is now over. And so he kind of uh, lives this life of reluctance. And what I mean by that is he lives on the fringes of society. He knows where society is. He knows where the camps are. He knows where the the herders uh, live, and he lives off to the side, possibly on a little hill overlooking, seeing their campfires at night. He knows where they are. And one day he's down by the water, and, you know, as would have it, as the story usually goes, you know, Shakespeare wrote it about, about it a lot. He saw a woman, and he falls in love. And so that brings him love, brings them into the fold. So now, because he's married, and because now he's back into society, he's no longer living a life of reluctance. He's kind of starting to live a life of responsibility. And that responsibility becomes greater because one day as he's off and uh, taking care of the flock, Uh, whether it's his or somebody else's, probably his father-in-law's, he sees a bush that is not burning. And um, it's at that moment that God speaks to him and talks to him and says, I need you to live a life of responsibility. But I'm going to use your past life of privilege to fulfill this responsibility. Because it's that past life of privilege that will allow Pharaoh, I mean, allow Moses to walk in and talk to Pharaoh. Not anybody would get 
that chance to just be able to walk in and say, you know, hey, Chuck, how's it going? Good to see you. Just going to go in and see Pharaoh, okay? Do you mind? Uh, you know, and, you know, Chuck is probably, like, shocked, surprised. Like, we haven't seen Moses in years. Uh, I, I don't know what to do. I, uh, well, he knows where Pharaoh is. He's already walking down the hallway. He knows how to get there. But before that happens, Moses has lots of excuses and lots of explanations as to why he should not be a servant minister for God. See, Moses comes up with an excuse or an explanation, his point, and God comes up with counterpoint. Moses' point God's counterpoint. Moses' point, God's counterpoint. This probably goes on for a long time. This was not, I, I don't envision, my, my interpretation of it is I don't envision Moses, you know, like, hey, no problem, God. I got, yeah, that, you're right. I should go do this. I, I, am, I, yeah, I was there. I'm privileged. I should be able to go back and, and get on in and get an audience with Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Yep, yep no, I don't think it went like that. Think about how it is when God calls on you. We have a point and God has a counterpoint. As Ross likes to say, in his house, there are no excuses and no explanations. But when we come to God, we come with plenty of excuses and plenty of explanations as to why we shouldn't do something. We can no longer live a life of privilege when we are called we have to live a life of responsibility. We have to live a life of responsibility to God and to each other. Adam Hamilton says this, um, Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, becomes the first management consultant in human history. And he gives the advice to Moses that every great management consultant has given to every leader since probably the beginning of time. And that is, you've got to delegate. So when I read this, I kind of stopped to think, and I'm sure that you're thinking as well, wait, wait, wait a minute. None of you think like I do, so that's probably a good thing. Um, I started to think, like, how many people is Moses leading out of Egypt? Have you ever thought about that? Like, is it 400? Is it 800? Scholars believe it was 2.6 million people. <laughs> and so I read this to you. Lone rangers do not make great dreams come true ever. So could you imagine Moses standing up in front of 2.6 million people? Hey, guys, follow me that way. How successful would that have been? He had to take his father-in-law's words to heart, and he had to get a team. He had to get a team around him and be able to get that team to say, okay, you guys take care of this, you guys take care of that, you guys take care of this, and together we'll get everybody where they need to be. They're going to the promised land. And for us as Christian, the promised land is the kingdom of God. It is the vision that's bigger than we are, that we are pushing ourselves towards we are trying to live into it. We'll never fully live into it this side of eternity, but we're going to pray every day, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
and we're going to lead our people toward the vision of the promised land. So what is Morningstar in the business of? We're in the business to give ministry away. In fact, here's an update for you folks. That back wall, turn around, take a look at it. That back wall comes down this Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. The last piece of deconstruction and this reconstruction of this church comes down. And why are we doing this? We're going to put in about 70 or 80 more chairs for those people over there, over there, over there, over there, over there, over there. And now I want you to take a look at the seats that you're in right at the moment, especially those of you who are in the back half of the church. Those are your seats. Those are your seats when we put in those new seats because those seats that are back there are for those folks out there because they're either unchurched or out of church shape or they're hurt and they want to sneak in and sit in the back row so they can sneak out. They... They are literally the church mice. And we have to allow them that space, that time to be able to come in until they're comfortable to be able to sit a little closer. Why are we doing this? It's because a thriving church does talk about taking next step, taking next steps. And we're a thriving church. And it is good for us to take a look into the possibility of what is available to us tomorrow, what's available to those who aren't here today. Being a servant minister is about empowerment, not about obligation. And we are empowered, and we are empowering servant ministers to serve. Chip-in is and was designed to be only for six months so that we can get our feet wet if we are out of shape because we have not served in a while or if we have not served at all. There's always room to try things out and the freedom to serve somewhere else if your spiritual gifts are not being used in the way that they are intended to be used. Think of it this way. Six months is 26 little sprints. Chip-in allows us to be creative. We have to be creative. A guy who thinks more weird than I do is this guy by the name of Frederick Harn, and we heard him uh, speak at the Global Leadership Summit, and I want to read these two quotes to you. We can't create out of nothing. We can't. Only God can. Creativity is taking two formerly known things and putting them together in a new way. So it's taking idea A or B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, M and smashing it together and see what it does. When we're doing that, we are never closer to God than when we have really, really, when we have a really, really good idea. It's in that moment when we have a really, really good idea that we can sense God. In that moment of creativity, that's where God is with us because we're creating. But we're also not creating something out of new. We're creating it out of something old and, and making it new. When we're being creative, using our creativity in the presence of others allows us to be close to God. So what's the benefit of being a servant minister? 
Brian Stevenson says this, effective leadership only happens when great leaders are willing to do uncomfortable things. Yes, being a servant minister is uncomfortable. It is hard to serve those you don't know. But then it becomes easier. The more you do it, the more comfortable you, you are, the more in shape you become, the easier it is. Or to put it in another way, being a servant of God happens when servant ministers are willing to do uncomfortable things. You have to be willing to do uncomfortable things. You heard Ross say it before. You'll hear Ross say it again. And hopefully this will be our mantra as well. When you're being a servant minister, you're practicing participation over perfection. We do not expect anybody to get it right. There is no way that you are expecting me to get this sermon right at this point in time. But as I say, and has become Ross's mantra, hear me now and believe me later. Our only expectation is that you try serving, that you try chipping in, that you try participating in ministry and practice participation. Who cares about the perfection? None of us are perfect. Only God is, and all he wants for us is to show up and try. That's it. Try. Angela Duckworth says this, Of course, talent counts, but effort, or to put it another way, participation counts twice. Marcus Buckingham says, I believe God blessed us with unique gifts and work or participation is a space to discover those unique gifts and spread them out to the world. Another way to spread, to share those unique gifts is to spread them out to the world by chipping in and serving. If you lead a ministry, remember this. Leading is taking care of someone's unique gifts and helping them contribute them to the world. Also remember this, the experience of service should be meaningful. So our jobs as servant minister leaders is to remove the obstacles out of the way to make servant ministry successful for those, remember, they're out of shape or they have never served before. That's our job. And by doing that, we make serving meaningful. To those of us who lead ministry, we must remember to value our servant ministers, to value their creativity, and to value their service, and to make it meaningful. Last, all great leadership flows from dreams, and so we should allow our servant ministers to dream, and to dream big, and to be creative, and to be creative big. So, it's time for the big ask. And it's also time for Chip and Bingo! That kid has never played Chip and Bingo before, but I love him. I love him. Dearly beloved, we have gathered here together to get through this thing we call Chip In. We ask that you take the time to look at your Chip In card to discern how deep is your love and to find where your passions lie in becoming a servant minister. We also ask that you make a six-month commitment from January through June. At the end of the six months, you can make changes and find another place to chip in that suits you best. Or you are more than welcome to continue serving in the ministry you are already in. Remember, we're not looking for jukebox heroes with stars in their eyes. We're looking for you. 
So there is no need to slip out the back jack or make a new plan stand. You are more than welcome to find a new place to serve. And guess what? No one's going to tell you, you picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. By chipping in, you may come to someone's emotional rescue by taking care of business. As you can see in your, uh, on your chipping card, there are lots of options to choose from. There are opportunities to make new friends, put a smile on someone's face, because we can be heroes if just for one day. Because when I chip in with you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. Congratulations. Come on, Eileen. Don't you see what, that we need a little less conversation and a little more action, please? All you need is love to be a servant minister and to chip in. When I chip in, I get the feeling that I can fly to the moon and, and play among the stars. Maybe when you chip in, you'll be picking up good vibrations and she will be picking up excitations. Help, we need somebody. Help, not just anybody. I'm crazy for trying and crazy for crying, and I'm crazy for loving you and wanting you to chip in. You see, folks, I think that we are the champions, my friends, and you should keep on serving till the end. Lighten up while you still can. Don't even try to understand me. Just find a place to chip in and take it easy. Because tramps like us, baby, we were born to chip in. Don't stop believing. Hold on to that loving feeling. This ain't no disco, and this ain't no country club either. This is Morningstar, and that was Chip in Bingo. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to serve we go. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down until you chip in.